The views and opinions of this program are those of its host and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of 90.1 FM, KKFI, Midcoast Radio Project, or its staff and volunteers. Welcome to Jaws of Justice Radio on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. It's Monday morning. My name is Terry. Jaws of Justice Radio strives to investigate how to achieve justice in America, and this includes issues of economic injustice, political injustice, and the criminal justice system. We want to dispel the misconceptions created by the news and entertainment industry, politicians, and our educational system. We hope you will listen. Today, host Latara Smith, founder of the Casey Freedom Project, will speak about conviction integrity units. Her guests will include Ronell Johnson and Larry Smith. Ronell was exonerated by the conviction integrity unit in Washtenaw County, Michigan, and Larry Smith was exonerated through the Conviction Integrity Unit in Wayne County, Michigan. There has been only one person exonerated by the Jackson County Conviction Integrity Unit since it began in 2021, and that's Kevin Strickland. Certainly, Kevin Strickland should have been exonerated. However, it's likely that many other persons in prison in Missouri deserve that same treatment. There are many reasons that individuals get trapped in the jaws of justice. A conviction integrity unit is necessary because many people have been wrongfully accused and convicted for crimes they did not commit. On Jaws of Justice, we examine how to find justice in our society. Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Now, our show. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to KKFI 90.1 FM. I'm your host, Latara Smith-Carnes, and I appreciate you all tuning in today. This morning, I have the opportunity, um, a blessed opportunity to be able to, to be able to interview two exonerees. And for those of you who do not know what an exoneree is, an exoneree is an individual who served time in prison for a crime that they did not commit and were able to get their cases overturned for some, some type of reason, whether it was a Brady violation or just various reasons the case can be overturned. But I am blessed to have two exonerees on with me this morning. Uh, Ronnell Johnson, thank you for being on here with me. You're welcome. Okay, and, and Larry Darnell Smith Jr., thank you for being on here with me this morning. Thank you, thank you for having us, thank you. Because not only am I blessed to be able to have you guys on here, but it is a blessing and a miracle that you two are even free to be sitting here with me to do this interview. So we got to give God all the glory and the credit real quick, because without Amen. him, you would be free today. Amen. 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 You guys are exonerees, both exonerated out of the state of Michigan. And before I get going, uh, I just want to explain to our listeners exactly what a conviction integrity unit is. And we don't have, we have several in, in, uh, conviction integrity units throughout various states and different counties. But the question is, 
how many of those conviction integrity units are affected and are really doing what they're supposed to do. So let me just go over with our listeners what a conviction integrity unit is. A conviction integrity unit is a division of a prosecutorial office that works to prevent, identify, and remedy false convictions, okay? Sometimes they are called conviction review units. There are sometimes formal committees that are formed within a state attorney's or a United States attorney's offices. In some smaller offices, uh, CIUs exist, but due to financial reasons and budget reasons, there is no actual formal dedicated unit, okay? And so you guys have been exonerated out of Michigan. And I, I want to start with um, Ron L. Johnson. You were exonerated through the Conviction Integrity Unit out of what, Washtenaw, Michigan, correct? Washtenaw, Washtenaw County. Which, Washtenaw which, County. Yeah, it's a neighboring county to Wayne County. Wayne County and Washtenaw County are side by side. It's just Wayne County is where Detroit is. And it's the eastern, it's the easternmost county in the uh, in the uh, state of Michigan where okay. we at on, on that line. Yeah. When was I think Washtenaw Conviction Integrity Unit was established in 2021? When were you exonerated? Yes. So I actually got exonerated in, on June 1st, 2022. Okay. Do you know how many people have been exonerated through that particular CIU? Um, if I'm not mistaken, it's just one other person behind me. It may it may it may be enough. I don't think it is though. But it's there's one other person behind me, and, and, and if, if, if um if I'm not mistaken, they were just saying that he wasn't really um you know uh mentally fit to you know face all the you know interviews and the, uh, all the um you know people want to know his story and want to know you know what happened, what he went through, and get his testimony. But the individual who came out to me did so much time and so much you know damage was done to him that he wasn't even. No, nobody. They didn't even deem him fit to, you know, really stand out front of the cameras and, and express what was going on. So he kind of been kept in the shadows and, and being taken care of that way. Uh, so I pretty much it seems, it seems like I'm the only one, but I'm pretty sure it's it's, it's that brother, it's that gentleman, and um, I think that's it. Do you know how much time he did? Can you recall right off? I want to say it's in the I want to say it's in the 30s. I want to say I'm not mistaken. Wow. It's in the 30s of the year. Now. Now, Mr. Smith, you were exonerated through the Conviction Integrity Unit in Wayne County, Michigan, which you just heard, Mr. J you listeners, you just heard Mr. Johnson say they are neighboring counties. The county that exonerated Ronnell Johnson and the county that exonerated Darnell, uh, Larry Darnell Smith are neighboring counties. Um, how many people has the Conviction Integrity Unit, Mr. Smith, that set you free, how many people have they exonerated? And I want to say they were founded in 2018, am I correct? Mm -hmm. uh, yes, ma'am. And how many people have they ex exonerated through their conviction integrity unit? I want to think maybe around 30, between 34 and 36. My, mm -hmm. my count may not be accurate, um, but last I known it was between 34 and 36. So let me just, let me just, just, just repeat this again for the listeners. Wayne, Washtenaw County, Michigan's Conviction Integrity Unit was established in 2021, and they've released two people. So that's kind of been an average one person a year since they've been in existence, basically. Wayne County Conviction Integrity Unit has been established since 2018. So from 2018 to now, 2024, they have exonerated over 30 individuals through their Conviction Integrity Unit. So this 
Mr. Smith, tell me, tell me what you think about this when you see conviction integrity units, like some of them are in existence. If you go online and you you research conviction integrity units, I'm telling you, many of them have no exonerations at all, period. What 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 do, you, what do you think the cause of that is? And then, Mr. Johnson, I'm going to cut. I want you to answer that after Mr. Smith does. All right. Um, well, I was present. They for the for the clinic that Mr. Uh, Ronell come out of. They they give us credit, the National Organization of Exonerees, for helping them to form um, the integrity unit. For me, when I first started, it was a question about a case about two brothers. They known as the VC brothers mm-hmm. out of Ypsilanti. So um, knowing and meeting Dennis VC while I was incarcerated, and then seeing that he was innocent, he was like, okay, I, I reached out to Ypsilanti and concerning him, and then it end up, we end up forming uh alliance more or less where they created this conviction integrity unit. But when it first started, I wanted to have um place to, uh, what is the word I want to say, a safeguard. Like if a conviction integrity unit is not doing anything then it should be some outside uh, entity that can step in to see it, especially when you got exonerees that's um, backing it. Um, I I think it's, I want to say it's another county that also, uh, Pete Lacido's county, they acknowledge us for helping them to form that county. But it's a case out of there, Kenya McClinton, a young man who's been incarcerated for over 20 years, and um, a person was just released with the same type of evidence. So across the board, there's no uniform uniformity. The word uniformity. There's no uniformity across the board of who gets consideration and who doesn't. In some states, they say, or in some counties, they say the newly discovered evidence factor. And other ones, they look at the whole totality of the cases. So when I think when it comes to conviction integrity units, I think that we should have some type of union unionality that um, you should have maybe four or five exonerees trained in the law to be able to sit to the side. So when it is that strong case that that um, conviction integrity unit can't get that argument across to the uh, prosecutor about that the exonerees trained in law and experience should be able to come in and advocate on their behalf. But 34 people being exonerated, I think that that's awesome. I think that it's probably a few hundred more people that should be exonerated right now um, out of Ypsilanti also. Just the VC case alone is so disturbing that I wish that they would look into that a, a lot more deeper because I just don't like the way that it's going. Yeah, they let me go, conviction integrity units, but they dropping the ball because there's other innocent people that's still in prison. That's the best way to put it. Yeah, I want to say this before I go to Mr. Johnson because I agree with several points, um, Larry, that you made there. And um, you know, I, I you know when when we look at the amount of people that are in prison, I was going over the stats, and they say four to six percent of people incarcerated in the U.S. are actually innocent. That's four to six percent, according to the stats that I that I was able to pull up. And you know, that's that's alarming. And and if you look at uh, I look at the races of individuals who have been exonerated, you know. And, you know, black Americans are seven times more likely than white Americans to be falsely convicted of serious crimes. And I, I, when I pulled those stats, that, that made me go back to, you know, looking at the exonerations. And, and we have the majority, if you look at the race of individuals who are being exonerated, the majority of them are African-American. So it highly concerns me all the way around. I don't care if it's black, white, Hispanic, Japanese, I don't care what the race is. 
Someone who is innocent and wrongly convicted should not be in that situation. And when we have conviction integrity units who are not diligently pursuing justice, they're just these conviction integrity units, you know, on paper or just to look good, you know, that's a problem because conviction integrity units, the, the main purpose of them is to look at the integrity of that conviction. You know, uh, in Jackson County, Missouri, and Rondell, I'm going to come back to you real quick. In Jackson County, Missouri, our conviction integrity unit was established, I believe, in 2021. That is actually how the Casey Freedom Project came on the scene. We begin uh, uh, advocating and pushing for the implementation of a conviction integrity unit starting in 2014 because no one down on that end in Jackson County knew anything about it. And, you know, we we came up against a lot of obstacles. We finally did get a conviction integrity unit, but we've only released one person. And of course, we're glad that Kevin Strickland is released. Amen. We're so happy for that. But he's the only one. And so now as a as a as an uh, inmate activist, I get so many letters. I have copies of letters where individuals are just constantly being denied and turned down from our current conviction integrity unit. And um, they're turning them down based upon procedural things, mm -hmm. procedural guidelines. And, mm -hmm. and that's not what they should do. They should look at the newly discovered evidence and take those things into consideration. If they're not doing that, then how just and fair is our current conviction integrity unit? We'll look at the case of Keith Carnes. You know, that was a case that we used, and I want to give Keith credit this morning because Keith actually put his case on hold three years, almost three years before he went to the courts to give us a chance to use his case before the Jackson County Prosecutor's Office as a module case, as an example to show why we need a conviction integrity unit in Jackson County. Well, guess what? Neither did they pay attention to anything in Keith Carnes' case, look what ended up happening. Keith Carnes ended up getting exonerated, okay, based upon some of the same things that we were taking to the prosecutor's office or telling them, you know, hey, there are issues with this case. You need to look at it. They refused to look at it. And look what happened. So if Keith Carnes didn't have the means or the financial support that he ended up having to get his case you know, to an attorney, for an attorney to draft those, the motions that, you know, actually resulted in him, you know, getting action in court and getting exonerated, Keith Carnes would still be incarcerated today. So I want our listeners to know how important conviction integrity units are, because we have a lot of people in prison. I do a lot of pro bono investigative work for individuals. That's why my finances are so messed up now, because I do so much pro bono work for people. And I can tell you this, I can find the evidence but those individuals have no means to pay an attorney to take them the next step in what you call prose uh, 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 representation. I mean, not prose, but post-conviction representation. They don't have it. And that's how valuable a conviction integrity unit is because these individuals who cannot pay for the, the, the representation, they can actually get in through the conviction integrity unit and have them look at it. But once again, if we have a conviction integrity unit who is denying everyone based upon procedural issues, then that is not a legitimate conviction integrity unit. Mr. Johnson, what do you think about all of this? So I want to be, I want y'all to understand something. I want the listeners to understand something. 
very, very um, important about this thing, about the Conviction Integrity Unit and um, and where they are, where 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 they are being, you know, started and found and found that. You got some places where <clears throat> the actual individuals who are starting a Conviction Integrity Unit or or campaigning for it are actually re justice reform type individuals, people who are affected by you know the 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 failures of criminal justice and all that. So these 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 actual people that are in place genuinely have hearing concern the reason for being the, the the actual individuals running the integrity unit or running an investigation against their own office. Now on the flip side you got also you got instances where the very people who are um a part of or, or perpetuating the 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 um the um uh, the atrocities and the and the um misconduct the prosecutor misconduct the police misconduct some of those people are savvy enough to see the trend or to see the see the See the, the the wheels shifting, and they get though they get they allies they they get their people in place in the integrity and expungement unit. They get their people and their allies in place to still uphold and protect them from the, from the bogus convictions. You got to understand, in my county, a whole new regime took over. The, the prosecutors and, and, and the judges and the people that convicted me falsely had got ousted. You know they were they were phased out. You know they lost favor, and a whole new regime came in. Uh, really, um, you know, individual individuals who had humanity. These individuals have went to the University of Michigan Innocence Clinic to be um, trained in law. They 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 um they went to the Innocence Clinic and got um, their degrees and stuff and got trained and stuff. And then they became uh, prosecutors' office uh, um, uh, investigators and stuff and uh, integrity unit people and actual prosecutors. And the thing about it is, in my county, is they have a little bit more humanity um, now. It's just it's the people, the individuals. Have more humanity versus you got places where, like the like like the state of Michigan has the um, integrity unit for the for the state, and they haven't released right. anybody but one person as well. And the thing is, there's a detachment there. There's just a detachment. The individuals in place have to literally have the issue. The issue has to be an issue for them as well. If it's not an issue for you, if it's not something that you fought for, if it's not an issue that you champion, and you're just a person who got in that in that in that spot, like you said, it's very um. It's it's undermanned. It's undermanned. It's not it's not a lot of finances going to uh, post conviction relief. Uh, it's a lot of stuff. It's a lot of emphasis on locking people up, and it's a lot of not it's not a lot of emphasis on digging into cases and looking up you know cases that have been quote unquote settled. But the conviction integrity unit is always going to be as good or as bad as the individuals that are in place within it. You got to understand that it's also is it's it's the arm of the prosecutor's office. So if the prosecutor's office is still corrupt, so to speak. You got you best you better believe that the conviction integrity unit is going to be slightly corrupt as well. If the prosecutor's office is headed by a prosecutor who is, you know, uh reform, reform oriented or just, you know, had has some type of way where criminal justice has affected even their family and they know that this is not right, then you're probably gonna stand a chance of having a good a good team of um investigators and a good team in general. Just we're dealing with a case where they won't try to just you know, frame you or trump up the charges and just book you. They will, you know, get into the circumstances of the case and find out and get to the humanity of the case and not just book you, like I say, um, like they do in a lot of other, other places. And I agree with you. And I want to say this real quick. I believe, and I'm not for sure if this other exoneree wants to talk, but I believe I see another exoneree. Do I see Mr. Bernard Howard in the background uh, there? the brother. Hello, Bernard. I'm so glad that you were there. Do you have anything that you want to say about the conviction in check? Because you were also exonerated 
by the Wayne County Conviction Integrity Unit. Am I correct, Mr. Howard? Yes. It is so good to see you this morning. I was waving at you. <laughs> what, what do you think? What, what's your opinion when it comes to this? As far as like and being like corrupted, like like what's the question? Well, with the conviction integrity units, like I said, you were exonerated from the conviction integrity. What do you think about well, what we're talking about is the conviction integrity units? Like there in Wayne County, you guys have 30. We have other counties in a lot of states that have none. Um mm -hmm. What why do you think the reason for that is with the conviction integrity units? Well, I think the integrity unit in Michigan, as far as Kim Worthy is concerned, I believe the reason we got such a high number is at this time she was all aware of what was going on. So she was kind of, I believe she was kind of more hands-on with the whole the whole conviction of unjust. So when the opportunity came. And she on her way out, she don't really have to answer to these people no more. I believe she went to fixing the errors that she long knew existed. And that's why her numbers went up so high. Like, I believe that they basically turned the blind eye to them convictions. And now that they at the end of their terms and things like that, I believe humanity kicked in. She said, let me let some of these people go. Because she was already conscious of the snitch programs and the corrupt police versus other communities might have integrity units that have nothing to do with the lateral mm -hmm. convictions and they coming in fresh. So right. their mind has to be opened up to everything that's going on versus she already knew. It was just about her fixing it. Okay. So that before, because we're getting down to the end of the show, I think we have about four minutes left. I want to say this, Bernard, how much time did you do before you were exonerated? I want the people to hear these years. How you much know, time? Years and four months. How long again, Bernard? 26 years and four months. Okay. And Larry, how much time did you do before you were exonerated? 26 years, 10 months, and seven days. And Mr. Johnson, how many years did you do before you were exonerated? I did 15 years. I don't have the months and the days, but I did 15 years from 2007 <laughs> to 2022. 2007, April to 2022, June. So a little, a little over uh, 15 years. Okay. And I would just like to say this. I want to say this one thing. Okay, My, my conviction integrity unit actually... Um, denied me. I, I was in there. They were working with me, and um, they got to a certain point where they denied me, and they and they um, they terminated my their, their investigation to my case, and basically told me good luck. So I gave up for for about a year, about a year, and then I just got back in in mode, and I filed my own relief. I filed my own motion for release from judgment. That got the attention of my conviction integrity unit in the prosecutor's office, which then they contacted the, the innocence clinic and told them, hey, you need to you need to double back on Ronnie L. Johnson. And represent him because he doesn't have an attorney. So then the instant clinic contacted me back and asked for permission to represent me in this matter. And then I, I allowed them, and that's how they cooperated with the integrity unit, the Michigan Instance Clinic, and the and the, and, the, and the integrity unit worked together and they got me home. And but see, I meant to say a, the innocence clinic denied me. I meant to say. That's a good thing. And I tell people when I go into the prisons and minister, I tell them, come off the basketball courts, come away from the domino tables, come out the chow yeah. hall you got to do and get your butt and in that library yeah. and study because nobody's going to fight for you like you're going to fight for yourself and nobody's going to know your case better than you. Well, you know no. what? We are actually down to the last couple of minutes. Uh, Mr. Smith, what would you like to say? I'll give you a minute real quick. What do you have to say going out? Um, I'm hopeful that uh, that the Washington County Integrity Unit will take a deeper look into the Dennis VC, the VC Brothers yes. case. I'm also Great. hoping that um, Pete Lucido will look into the Kenyon McClendon uh, McClinton case. That's one I haven't reached out to you also, Latara. 
Um, I, I hate to admit this, but for me, Claudia Whitman came all the way from Colorado to save me and some other guys, other Zonerees. I might need you to come in here in the Michigan to help me save some of these people. So um, we know we got a trial coming up on uh, the 25th of March. Um, you can you can speak on that just a little bit, please. But I might and need you to come on. We'll be there to support uh, Darrell Ewing uh, there in uh, Detroit. Um, we have we're coming to the last minute, Mr. Howard. Real quick, anything you want to say to the listeners before we tune out? Yeah, I would like to tell the families of people that's incarcerated, don't only rely on the integrity unit. If there's some things that y'all can do as far as knocking on some doors, getting some people to come forward, like you got to be out here also aiding and assisting because faith without hard work ain't going to bring them home. We need both together. Yes, yes. and scripture says faith without works is dead. So you are absolutely correct. Well, everyone who tuned in uh, this morning, I want to thank you for tuning in. Once again, I am your host, Latar Smith-Carnes of the Casey Freedom Project. And I just, as I'm going out, I want to ask each of you, you know, inform you, you can go online and Google uh, and find the various conviction integrity units and look into them and find out what their application process is. But also continue to fight for your loved ones. Remember, you have to be a voice for the voiceless. Everyone, thank you so much for tuning in this morning. Have a blessed day. Thank, Thank you. you. Have a blessed one. Mm -hmm. All right, y'all. Support for KKFI provided by the Kansas City Repertory Theater, presenting the play Nina Simone, Four Women, with performances from February 13th through March 3rd at their downtown Copaken stage. Audiences can experience the journey of Nina Simone's iconic music and the stories of four extraordinary women in Nina Simone, Four Women, a play featuring Nina's music performed live. More information and tickets are available at kcrep.org. Hello, KKFI listeners. This is David Barsamian of Alternative Radio. Beginning January 24th, AR is moving to Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Don't miss a single edition of Alternative Radio at 90.1 FM on your dial and kkfi.org. And thanks for supporting Community Radio KKFI. Hi, this is Penny Massa, a longtime listener at KKFI. KKFI's Fun Drive will be starting soon and we need volunteers for our phone bank. You can participate remotely or by coming into the station. All phone bank volunteers must be comfortable talking to donors on the phone and entering pledges on the computer. In addition, remote phone bank volunteers will need a reliable internet connection and a computer with a microphone and speakers. Sign up for a shift today at kkfi.org slash phone bank or contact our volunteer coordinator at 816-994-7864 for more information. Here's the calendar for the week of February 5th. Legal Aid of Western Missouri can provide free civil legal services to low-income and vulnerable people who live in Jackson County, Missouri. Interested individuals can call 816-474-6750 to apply. 
For information about Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense meetings this week, you can go to momsdemandaction.org. Everyone's welcome, mothers and others. In Kansas, the Moms Demand Action Advocacy Day will be Thursday, February 8th. Please check the calendar at moresquare.org for events you can attend. Thursday, February 8th, 10 a.m., Empower Missouri's Community Justice Coalition invites you to their virtual meeting. The Community Justice Coalition is a multi-sector team of dedicated advocates who envision a future without mass incarceration. Register at empowermissouri.org. Thursday, February 8th, 6 p.m., Corey's Network Grief to Relief Seminar meets at the Maddie Road Center, 148 North Topping Avenue, Kansas City, Missouri. This seminar is moving forward. Shelly Norris is going to lead a discussion and give tips on how to move forward from the homicide. For those unable to attend in person, all sessions are accessible via Zoom. To get the Zoom link, please visit coreysnetwork.org. Friday, February 9th at noon is Empower Missouri's Friday Forum, and the topic is the lasting impact of redlining. Markeia Watson, Executive Director of Greater Kansas City Coalition to End Homelessness, will discuss the legacy of racist housing policies and their impact across the state. You can join the virtual Friday Forum at empowermissouri.org. Saturday, February 10th, noon to 2 p.m., Mothers of Incarcerated Sons and Daughters KC asks you to join them at PlexPod Westport Commons, centrally located on the bus line, easy to find at 300 East 39th Street, Kansas City, Missouri, Annex A Meeting Room, with convenient parking and much more. A list of services, meals, and hotlines are available at Lawrence Progressive Calendar, blogspot.com. The list is updated daily. Items on this calendar can also be found on this episode's page at the KKFI website, kkfi.org, as well as on the Jaws of Justice Facebook page. Please take care of yourselves and others. Stay safe. Be kind to each other. Thanks for listening to Jaws of Justice. Let's return to the program we will be talking with Karen Lev and Kuang Yu Ching of the American Civil Liberties of Union of Kansas about the issues that concern them the most. They are both staff attorneys with uh, Kansas ACLU. Ms. Lev was uh, previously a supervising attorney at the Bronx Defender, a holistic public defense office that represents clients in criminal, civil, and immigration matters in the Bronx borough of New York City. Ms. Ching was born and raised in Johnson County, Kansas. She returned to Kansas after clerking for judges in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California. At that court, she worked on cases involving a wide variety of civil rights issues, including racial and ethnic discrimination, disability rights, labor, employment, prisoners' rights, immigration, First uh, First Amendment, free speech, and excessive force, and other police misconduct. 
What are the most important things you'd like our audience to know about the issues that concern the Kansas ACLU currently? Well, Spencer, why don't I start? Thank you for having us. Let me just give a little brief background about what it is that we do over at the ACLU of Kansas that everybody sort of gets oriented. So we are a nonpartisan uh, nonprofit organization uh, that focuses on defending civil rights and civil liberties that are guaranteed by the Constitution and by federal law. So we believe that everyone, all Kansans, civil rights should be protected, regardless of race, gender, sexual orientation, religion, political affiliation. So we've worked to defend the rights of marginalized groups um, for over a century. The ACLU is structured that there is a national office, and then each state has an affiliate office. And so Kwan Yu and I come to you from the affiliate office of Kansas, so the ACLU of Kansas. Um, one little thing about our work is that we are structured in a way that we focus on integrated advocacy. So what that means is that we look at issues and we look at the issues that we're most interested in and we approach them from several different ways. So that includes legal, right? Which Connie and I as the staff attorneys um, work and that's the filing of lawsuits. We also have lobbying and policy efforts and our grassroots organizing um, project that works in the communities um, on behalf of, of people who oftentimes can't afford lawyers on their own or bring suit you're pushing evidence-based public policy, right, in the public policy arena. Talk about that. Largely what that means is that when we're looking at reform or changing things, um, we want to look at what research says is working and what research says isn't working, what polls and research tells us who's impacted and who's benefiting from certain ways that things that are, that when we're thinking about change, certainly when we're imagining justice and criminal legal reform, we wanna to look to the evidence and then propose changes that are based and rooted in that evidence so that we have meaningful and impactful change. Talk more about uh, reimagining uh, criminal justice. Sure, so a reimagining justice uh, campaign is really looking at the criminal legal system and acknowledging what we see isn't working and looking for ways right to prioritize changes in that system. And we at the ACLU believe that the system isn't working, right? And this is based, and this goes back to your initial question, Spencer, about evidence-based practices, is that what the evidence shows us is that our system punishes things like poverty, mental illness, and substance abuse and disproportionately harms communities of color. And it simultaneously creates these cycles of harm and violence that perpetuates. Um, we believe that a legal system shouldn't do that, right? That it shouldn't be wealth-based, that treatment shouldn't be dependent on your economic situation, that spending tax dollars on the system should be spent on looking at solutions that are based in evidence, that are based in data. and a system should respect the rights of everyone who's involved in that system. And so from that, we're really focused on three main priorities uh, in this campaign. The first is the elimination of fines and fees for juveniles statewide. The second is decreasing the number of Kansans who are detained pre-trial. And the last is statutory decriminalization of medical marijuana and equity within that medical marijuana space. Um, mm -hmm. I can speak briefly to, to each one, but with our elimination of juvenile fines and fees, what we're seeing is that children in the criminal legal system are being charged thousands of dollars of fines and fees um, with these cases. And 
we know that children aren't able to work, right? Children don't have income to pay these fines and fees back. And so what happens is, one, either the juveniles take on bad credit, civil judgments against them that impact their ability to progress as they grow up to become, to be able to get jobs, to be able to get loans, or, and or their families, right, who are often already working class families or low income families are burdened by this debt, whereby perpetuating cycles of poverty within the communities and harming communities. And of course, this ties back to the fact that we know that most of these juveniles being assessed these fines and fees are from communities of color. And so we see it's this perpetuation of these cycles. And what research tells us is that these fines and fees are not effective um, at preventing or reducing crime. In fact, they're often counterproductive. We also are focused on the issue of wait times for Kansans who are being held pre-trial, who are waiting for competency evaluations um, and restoration services. So this is when somebody is perhaps deemed um, not competent to proceed at trial and they need services. Um, we know that individuals are often waiting in county jails pre-trial for 11 months, a year, all before they're convicted of anything, before they get their services. We've actually filed a lawsuit in that case, um, which you can read much more about on our website, uh, suing the Kansas Department of Aging and Disability over these long wait lists because we believe that it subjects our clients and other individuals on these wait lists to prolonged punishment and violates their constitutional rights. The last sort of priority under our campaign is, is medical marijuana. American voters across partisan lines agree that the war on drugs has largely failed. And despite this, Kansans continue to resort, or the government continues to resort to the criminalization of access to medical treatment in the form of marijuana. And this hurts Kansans. It hurts Kansans seeking medical, seeking medical treatments. Right. So you've talked about, uh, yeah, and there's not, so, and of course, people who are incarcerated pending trial, lose their jobs, they lose, lose their home. So they wind up um, homeless because they can't pay the rent, uh, et cetera, right? And, and this can is- lose custody of their children. It can destroy right. their families. And when we see that this is in particular impacting a certain communities, right? Communities of color, it's just perpetuating cycles of violence on the community, cycles of poverty and is not keeping our communities safer. It's harming our communities. It's harming um, these communities' abilities to thrive. We've done a tremendous amount of research and rely on outside resources. We've also done a tremendous amount of polling on this and all of the data and all of the, is, is can be found on our website for a deeper dive into looking at the studies that show, that show this. Um, I really encourage all the listeners who are interested in this to really go over to our website at ACLU Kansas and see, be able to really see um, all the, the the data that that supports um, these issues that we are that we're fighting for. Great, great, yeah, and, and I know that there's been research for decades that basically says that that uh, drug abuse in general. Uh, not just not not just marijuana, but drug abuse general. The process, uh, the criminalization of drug abuse, um, has not 
is is basically the worst approach to managing the problem of substance abuse. Am I right? Yeah. We're working on vote from jail programs. If you are being detained in jail pre-trial um, because you weren't able to make bail for all those reasons that we discussed earlier, um, but you haven't yet been convicted of a felony, you are still eligible to vote. Um, but obviously those people can't get out and go to their local poll site. And another item that we are working on is voter restoration programs. In Kansas, if you have been convicted of a felony and you have completed your sentence, finished your probation or parole, and paid off all your fines and fees, you are eligible to vote. I highly encourage anybody who's in that situation to go to restoremyvoteks.org for more info. Um, and that particular project, I think, dovetails really nicely with our fines and fees work that Karen was talking about earlier. It's not only are you suffering like all of these all of these subsequent effects from just not having enough money to pay off your fines and fees, you're also prevented from political access from voting because you're poor. Um, and one thing I think is important in our voting rights campaign, um, one thing I don't think people realize is just how locally controlled elections are in Kansas. Everything is county-based. Um, each county has an election officer who has very broad discretion and power to decide how elections are run in their respective counties, from polling locations, to the voting hours, to offering advanced voting, um, or whatever mail-in ballot procedures you might have, to um, the kinds of voting equipment that you have at each location. And in the four largest Kansas counties, that's Johnson, Cedric, Shawnee, and Wyandotte, so basically KCK, Topeka, and Wichita, um, the election officer for those four counties is appointed by the Kansas Secretary of State. And in the remaining 101 counties in Kansas, the election officer is typically the county clerk, and that person is an elected official. We have done a report um, based on a lot of research. It's called All Democracy is Still Local. That's available on our website for more details on the current state of voting. Um, and county-specific information on things like how many poll sites vis-a-vis um, -vis, like population for each county. Mm -hmm. Great. We are visiting with Karen Lee and uh, Guan Yu Ching of the American Civil Liberties Union of Kansas about the issues that concern them the most currently. Talk about some of the criminal cases you've got going that are or or major litigation that you've got going? Yeah, sure. Um, not directly criminal um, defense related. One of the cases that we have had going on for the last four years is now titled Shaw versus Smith. Um, this is a case we brought against the Kansas Highway Patrol for its practice of violating motorists' Fourth Amendment rights by unconstitutionally extending traffic stops um, to wait for a drug dog to come out and sniff your vehicle um, to see if you have drugs without reasonable suspicion. And specifically, the KHP is detaining people for drug dog sniffs based on legally insufficient or impermissible factors, um, such as the fact that they are traveling on I-70 um, from Colorado. Um, and Colorado features prominently because they have legalized marijuana and Kansas does not. <laughs> um, and in that case, we have 
this absolutely incredible stalwart group of plaintiffs who have stuck with this case um, over the last four years. Last year in 2023, we had three separate trials, um, two different juries found in favor of our plaintiffs. Um, and one of those juries even awarded punitive damages because they found the trooper who was involved in that stop, they found his behavior was so egregious um, that it merited awarding extra money. Um, and to the best of my knowledge, that was the first time that punitive damages have ever been awarded against a KHP trooper. Um, so we had those two jury trials. And then after a bench trial, the court granted our request for injunction um, ordering the KHP to cease its unconstitutional practices. Um, and one of those practices is the way it's called the Kansas two-step. Perhaps you've heard of that. Um, it's a tactic that KHP troopers are trained on at the academy and um, the KHP superintendent encourages their troopers to engage in this. Um, so what happens is um, trooper pulls you over for a traffic infraction, you know, maybe you were speeding. They take your, your papers, your insurance, your driver's license, your car registration. Um, they run your info. They might write you a ticket and then they come back to your car window, hand you your papers back and say something like, have a good night or drive safe. Then they take two steps back toward their car. Um, and at trial, it sometimes varied between one and four steps. But they turn right back around and they say, hey, can I ask you some more questions? And at that point, they try to get more information out of you about what your travel plans are, where you're headed, how long you're going, um, anything to build um, reasonable suspicion, sufficient reasons to keep you there so they can call for a drug dog to come sniff your car in hopes that they find some drugs or some evidence to use against you. So after the bench trial, the court issued the injunction. Um, the Kansas Highway Patrol has appealed and we are currently in the early stages of that process. Another one of our criminal justice cases that we have going on is called Progeny versus City of Wichita. And that case concerns the city of Wichita Police Department's um, practice of maintaining a database or a list of people that they believe are gang members or gang associates based on certain criteria outlined in state law, um, KSA section 21-6313. Um, and those criteria are things like the clothing that someone's wearing, uh, the places they go, the people they hang out with, um, hand signs that they use, uh, social media posts. Um, these criteria are um, frequently so overbroad that it covers a huge swath of innocent conduct. Um, for example, um, Chiefs fans wearing red, gathering at a local bar to watch um, the game, maybe the upcoming Chiefs versus Ravens game, um, and doing the chop could be designated as gang members. If someone there who's at the bar happens to be on the list, um, you know, hanging out with you, talking about the Chiefs, um, or the bar is in a, quote, criminal street gangs area. The WPD doesn't tell adults that they're on the list. There's no way for you to appeal your inclusion on the list. There's no way to get off the list. There are actually a lot of consequences for being on the list. If you're on the gang list and you are charged with a person felony, there's an automatic $50,000 bail that is imposed. Um, and 
In fact, the first time that a lot of people even find out that they're on the list is when they're in front of the judge being arraigned, hearing what they're charged with, and finding out that the WPD thinks they're a gang member. So your bail is minimum $50,000. Um, if you're on the list, you're also subject to additional restrictions for pretrial release or probation or parole. Um, those restrictions are called gang conditions. For example, those with gang conditions have a strict curfew can't wear certain kinds of clothing, can't go to certain parts of town, can't hang out with certain people, and in some cases that might even include your own family members. Um, you can't get any new tattoos, no matter what the tattoo is, even if the tattoo was something like, I love grandma, can't get it. Um, and though the, the mandatory $50,000 bail and the gang conditions can be imposed on you, even if the crime that you've been charged with has nothing whatsoever to do with gangs or gang activity. Um, for example, in the, in the course of this case, we heard the story of this guy who was drunk in public in Old Town um, in Wichita and mounted police on horses, rode up on him and they surrounded him. And he was so drunk that he tried to push one of the horses out of the way, um, which I mean, was drunk in public, nothing to do with gangs, not even a violent crime. So, so, that's, um, so that's criminal assault, right? Yes, uh, I believe that's what he was charged with. Uh, but because he was on the list, gang conditions applied and he was prohibited from returning to Old Town. Gang information is shared with other law enforcement agencies across the country. Um, and beyond these legal consequences, there's social consequences of being labeled a gang member. Um, it can affect your employment prospects, your housing, um, your educational prospects. And I also think it's worth mentioning that the vast majority of the people on the gang list are, unsurprisingly, Black and Latino. Uh, according to the 2020 census, the city of Wichita population is 67.9% white alone, not Hispanic or Latino, 14.1% Hispanic or Latino, and 7.5% Black. But the makeup of the gang list is only 14% white, 30% Hispanic or Latino, and over 50% Black. And I think it's pretty clear who the WPD is targeting for inclusion on that list. So this case, to get back to your question, um, we filed a class action suit against the city of Wichita challenging um, the state statute as unconstitutional and void for vagueness. Um, for violation of our, our clients' First Amendment rights to expression and association, and for violation of their 14th Amendment rights to procedural due process. We do have our ongoing um, litigation, Glenn Denning v. Howard, which is our litigation about unconstitutional wait times for individuals to get competency restoration treatments and evaluations. I'm interested in hearing more about that, but let me clarify one thing. Is it correct that employers and landlords can find out if you're on the gang list, but you maybe can't? You know, that is still kind of unclear. The WPD's position has been that they don't share that information outside, you know, like necessary law enforcement purposes. Um, but the things that we've heard from community members is that, you know, if you're encountering the police, they might tell you that that you're on the list or we have our eye on you because you're on the list. There was one instance in which a WPD officer- WPD is Wichita Police Department? Correct, Wichita Police Department. Um, a WPD officer 
notified Section 8 that a particular house had gang members visiting it all the time. And that Section 8 employee said, got it, you know, then we'll, we'll go ahead and initiate eviction proceedings. Even if you're a gang member, you have First Amendment rights. You have due process rights. And this law, as it's practiced, deprive you of those rights. Exactly. I'll just speak a little bit more to our um, our lawsuit about unconstitutional wait times for competency evaluation and restoration treatment. What we learned and what we've seen is that the Kansas Department of Aging and Disability Services, or KDADS, runs the forensic unit at Learned State Hospital, which is where individuals need these types of services are admitted to, to get these services. And they use a wait list um, for bed space. And in recent years, um, the wait lists have become so long that people will often spend more time waiting for these services in their county jail for evaluation or treatment than they would have if they had been convicted of the underlying. And so this egregiously long wait list and people sitting in county jails exacerbates their mental health challenges. They're sitting in county jails that are not therapeutic. They're not equipped to, to provide any therapeutic treatment. And they sit there waiting and, and decompensating, having prolonged punishment before conviction in violation of their constitutional rights. We're much earlier along in that, in that lawsuit, um, but we are representing uh, four, four individuals whose service was called Next Friend for individuals who were on the wait list. So um, they are individuals who have a relationship with somebody who was on that wait list and they are, they are uh, we filed on their, on their behalf. And so really we, we, what we want to see happen is for KDANs to change their policy and of this wait list and admit people much quicker, right? And ensure that their constitutional rights pre-trial are upheld. Um, we are in the early stages, we're in the discovery phase of the case. Um, and as Kwan, you had mentioned when we were talking about summary judgments, that's the phase of the case where we're, we're learning and getting all the documents uh, that get us to that next stage of the case or take us to trial to really understand, um, you know, the, the we, we believe we'll prevail on the case and getting documentary evidence to, to support where we're at in that case. You have been listening to an interview with Karen Lev and Kwang Yu Ching of the American Civil Liberties Union of Kansas, talking about the issues that concern them the most currently. I'm Spencer Graves. We hope you enjoyed today's show and that we leave you with something to think about, something to talk to your neighbors about, and a reason to get involved. As always, the opinions expressed are those of the hosts and guests of Jaws of Justice Radio, not necessarily of KKFI, the Midcoast Radio Project Incorporated, its staff or volunteers. You can find our calendar of events and a link to our show episodes and podcasts under the News and Public Affairs tab on the KKFI website, kkfi.org. If you have a show idea or want to volunteer to produce the show, please click on the contact link at the top of the KKFI webpage. Tune in for the rest of the 9 a.m. weekday lineup with Arts Magazine on Tuesday, Arts Speak Radio on Wednesday, Cowtown Conversations on Thursday, and Between the Lines at 9 a.m., followed by Understanding Israel-Palestine at 9.30 on Fridays. 
Up next this morning is Dr. Mike's Morning Medicine Show, followed at noon by the 45 Hive with Clinton Martins. Stick around for the Jazz Canadian at 2 p.m. and Blues with Mother's Mix at 4 p.m. You can go back to Information Radio with Eco Radio KC at 6 p.m., followed by Law and Disorder at 7 p.m. Then round out your day south of the border with Fiesta Musicale at 8 and Noche Magica at 10 p.m. Please keep your dial on 90.1 FM, home of Kansas City Community Radio. I'm 